before I start, I'll just say it's good to be back. It's wonderful to see you all. Um, and I have come home to a, a little bit of a difficult gospel passage, I would say. Um, this is one that deserves some unpacking. So Jesus tells this parable this morning about a king who throws a banquet, a wedding banquet for his son. And he invites the people to the wedding banquet, but all the people who are invited express that they're really too busy and they can't be bothered. They've got other things that they would rather do. Um, that, that's the, the better part. And when the servants go again and ask the people uh, a second time, it gets worse. And they abuse those servants, actually killing them. And the king, of course, is enraged. And the king has those people themselves killed and their towns destroyed. But then he does a very surprising thing. And the king actually says, go back out and now invite everyone you see. Everybody that you encounter on the streets, good and bad, invite them all. And so the people receive the invitation. They come to the wedding banquet and the halls are filled with guests, which could have been kind of a good ending. But then the king comes into the halls and he sees one of the guests and the guest is not wearing the wedding robe that is expected. And he says to that guest, he says, where is your robe? Why are you dressed the way you are? And the man doesn't give any response at all. And so then the king throws him into the outer darkness, bound hand and foot, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. To begin unpacking this, the first thing to point out is that in Jesus' parables, sometimes we hear about a king or a wealthy landowner, and the assumption or the instinct is for people to think that this is Jesus saying something about God, and it's a story about this is who God is and how God behaves, but it isn't. To say that God and the king are one and the same is a misunderstanding of the use of parables. Parables are meant to get our attention, and they often will tell stories that are extreme, as this one is. But the king is not God, the king is being a king. And not only just a king, but a king in a parable, which means an extreme version of what a king might be. And sometimes if we get that mixed up, we might miss the truth that the parable is meant to show us, to shock us into being open to receive, in fact. Well, another thing that we need to understand for this parable is the system of honor in that time. And so if you are in the role of somebody high up, like a king, and you throw a banquet and you go to the extent that this king went to to prepare everything, when people do not receive that invitation, you are being greatly dishonored and things are out of order. And that king then needs to restore the order. And when he fills the halls with people, it's the beginning of restoring that order. But then when the person is not wearing the right wedding robe. Well, this is interesting. Scholars actually do not have a clear understanding of what that wedding robe would have been. It's not something that is known. And some have said, actually, perhaps a better understanding of, of what the text means is the difference between clothes that are clean and dirty clothes. And perhaps this man was just wearing clothes that he had not bothered to wash. He was dressed in dirty clothes, which is disrespectful. And then when the king goes to him and asks him this question, the king is actually giving him an out, giving him an opportunity that he can explain himself. 
And this man doesn't even bother to say a word, like not even lifting a finger. And then we get the memorable and difficult conclusion. And so what is the truth that this parable is here to teach us? What is the point of Jesus telling it? I see this as being a lesson about our disposition towards God. We are called to do something radical, and it's something that's even more radical today in our day and age than in almost any other time I can imagine. And that radical thing we are asked to do is to be generous with ourselves, to give our whole selves, our whole attention, and even our whole being. And it's part of us knowing our place in relationship with God, knowing that God is more than our situation. God is, in fact, our ultimate home. He is the ground of our being, or as Paul Tillich put it, God is our ultimate concern. And how rarely do we act as if God really is our ultimate concern from day to day? A small aside, but one that I think is worthwhile, is that studies have been done on happiness. And what is it that leads to a correlation of experiencing happiness? Um, well, the studies have shown that once a certain threshold of needs are met, uh, accumulating more uh, stuff, more possessions, having more wealth doesn't correlate to increasing happiness. But other things do. Increasing community, increasing sense of purpose in your life increases the happiness you experience. And then an interesting one, um, and, and the wording for it is a little bit strange, but I think that uh, you'll understand it, living with flow. You know when you're in the flow, when you are in your groove, it, it's another way of describing when you're fully present, when you're not distracted, when you're completely showing up for whatever it is that you may be showing up for that actually leads to a feeling of fulfillment and of happiness. And it, I think, maybe points some helpful um, insight for us about why this generation that we are a part of is so full of anxiety and unhappiness. We are so remarkably distracted and pulled in different ways that it's become just a way of being. And what we're being asked to give is all of our attention, all of ourselves, all of our presence, in a way that those first guests and that one particular guest at the end clearly were not doing. And it turns out that when we do do that, when we give of ourselves fully, we discover that it's very life-giving. In fact, it's liberating. And as for God, you can imagine God craves our attention. God craves our presence. Something we can relate to because we crave the attention of the people that we love as well. Richard Rohr speaks of this in terms of Eucharist. Uh, Richard Rohr is a, is a Franciscan a Roman Catholic priest, and he says, in his tradition, the church has spent a lot of time and energy defending the real presence in the bread and the wine. But he says that it's also important to look at the other side of that equation, which is us being present to the presence. God has done God's part. God is present. And we need to learn to do our part to be present to God's presence in our midst.
So as many of you know, I just returned on Wednesday afternoon from the Holy Land with, uh, where I was with many St. John's people and also some people from Christ Church Georgetown. And it's great to look out and see many of the fellow pilgrims who are here right now. We had quite an experience. It's one of those things where people say, well, what, how was your trip? And there are no answers. That I can't say it in a word or two. Um, and, and I thought this morning, I noticed when I looked down at my shoes, I still have the dust from the old city on the shoes that I'm wearing today. It is very, very close. And when we were in the Holy Land, it's hard to describe it in words, but when we got to go to some of those places that have been revered and celebrated for centuries upon centuries, there was a vibration at many of those places. You, you feel a presence and you feel a holiness. Um, it reminds me of the Native American storyteller who says, I don't know if it happened exactly this way or not, but I know this is true. That's the kind of truth that we were experiencing when we were at these places which are the alleged sites of great miracles that have occurred in our faith. There were even some people among us, not the St. John's people, but people who were real skeptics. <laughs> and uh, they admitted that they experienced something profound they were not expecting as well, which brought them too to tears. And perhaps you've heard people tell a story here and there where they will tell about a thing that happened and then they'll say, well, and then God showed up. Well, I thought about that phrase. That's theologically not good theology, in fact, um, because that's never the case. It's not that God showed up, it's that you showed up. That's what I think you get when you get to be so privileged to be a pilgrim walking on that ground. You learn that while that ground may be holy, so is everywhere else. And we better take our shoes off to walk upon this holy ground of the earth because it's about us showing up, being present to presence, showing up to the banquet that has been set for us. Now, our guide in the Holy Land is a man named Iyad Kumri, and some of you I know have been on previous pilgrimages. He has been our guide for many St. John's pilgrimages over the years. He's been doing this for 25 years, and he is a wonderful person, a lot of fun to be with. He himself is an Episcopalian. He's a native of East Jerusalem, so he is a Christian Arab-Palestinian. And he cares deeply about the experience of pilgrims who get to come to these holy places. He also cares about the people of that land and having us who visit have a chance to experience life among people and get to know some of them. And one of the things that uh, we kind of discovered right off the bat with Iyad is he would say, well, we're going to go to this place this afternoon, and I have a cousin there who sells uh, the most delicious pomegranate ju juice. You should try some. You're going to love it. And then, oh, I, I have a cousin who has a, a pottery store, and you might get some ceramics to bring home to your family. And then tomorrow, we're going to go to my cousin Ruth's restaurant, which has the best falafel you'll ever have in your life. And by the way, it was the best falafel <laughs> we've ever had in our lives. Well, pretty soon, as I think you're catching on, none of these people were actually his cousins. Um, and yet, there was family. And uh, Iyad is what I think David Brooks, David Brooks would call a weaver somebody who builds connections. And uh, we would meet Iyad's hundreds of cousins. His cousins included Jewish cousins and Muslim cousins and many 
Arab Christian cousins, which is actually astounding because they make less than 2% of the population now. But we got to know these people who greeted us with warmth and hospitality, and we lived among them. And then there were times where we would have a little time off in the afternoon, and he would say, well, you have a chance now. Go into the old city or go explore. Make your own cousins. To be a cousin is to be a neighbor. And to wear the robe of Christ is to put on the robe of love. To love all of our neighbors and to see that connectedness which actually binds us all together if we have the eyes to see it. Now, the history of Jews and Palestinians in the Holy Land is a complicated one and a hotly contested one. There are no easy answers, but after my time there, what I can say to you is that being there, being present in that place, caused me to have a deep affection for the people there, Jews and Arabs. And the horrendous evil visited upon the Israelis and other Jews who died at the hands of Hamas last weekend grieves my soul, and my soul also grieves for the innocent men, women, and children who are already becoming collateral damage in the response. I am troubled. Now, many times when we visited places there and we experienced that shocking closeness to the realm where God's divinity comes close to our earthly reality, and we touched stones or we stood in places where tradition holds that miracles had taken place, it's good to believe in the possibility of miracles because peace would be a miracle too. And it will only happen if all who would be peacemakers show up and show up fully with their whole selves and their whole hearts, wearing the garments of the love of Christ because God does not just show up, it is we who show up for God. And that is when the miraculous becomes possible. Amen.